Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Did you notice the new marching tune intro? That's Victor Hubert's March of the Toys from Babes in Toyland, the 1905 operetta. With the holidays upon us, I'm excited to talk about Christmas in the Gilded Age. So excited that I've actually changed the theme song. So put the fire on, cuddle up, get a warm cup of something, because today's episode will put you in the holiday spirit. Christmas became a nationwide holiday in 1870 when President Ulysses S. Grant signed a law giving federal employees the day off. The bill that Grant signed also formally made New Year's, Thanksgiving, and the 4th of July national holidays. So, very many thanks to Grant for that. But, I'm sure you'll agree, Christmas began long before 1870, although in a different guise than we might imagine. Where did Santa Claus come from? Why do we have Christmas trees? Why do we give gifts and decorate the house? And why in the world are preparations for Christmas so stressful and delightful at the very same time? Christmas is a holiday that has many rituals, many of which are unique to the United States and no doubt unique to individual households. But where do they come from? What do they say about us? And why do they persist or disappear? To help us unpick these Christmas mysteries, I'm joined by Thomas Roy Smith, Professor of American Literature and Culture at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. Professor Smith is the author of several books that grapple with culture, and most recently, Deepwater, the Mississippi River in the Age of Mark Twain, which explains how and why the Mississippi was so central to the writings of Twain and the understanding of America in the 19th century. Today, we're going to be talking about just about every author other than Mark Twain with Professor Smith in his latest book, Christmas Past, an anthology of seasonal stories from 19th century America. We're going to go on a tour from Christmases of the early Republic to those in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on a journey that explores international relations, slavery, cultural appropriation, religion, and even the supernatural. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So Christmas time is, it seems such a special time, and your book really uh, sets it out as this unique holiday in American history and perhaps British history and transatlantic history as well. I have to admit, I've given scant thought 
to Christmas, I think probably because I'm always so caught up in the cycle of cooking, eating, and sleeping to really <laughs> consider uh, amidst all the gluttony. So, but let's start at the beginning of your book. Can you take us through what does Christmas look like from the 17th century to the 19th century? Well, yeah, it, I, mean, I suppose in a nutshell, it's a story of, of regional difference, largely. At least that's how it comes to be understood in the 19th century as well. So obviously up in New England, you have a, a kind of lingering Puritan prejudice against Christmas, which, which starts early and lasts well into the 19th century. So, you know, this, this, this book covers, covers the 19th century, but it's, it's fascinating, I think, the degree to which Christmas is still viewed suspiciously for a large part of that period, really right through up until uh, the Gilded Age. So, so I suppose that's the situation in the North. The, the, I have a quotation or two from William Bradford in the introduction, looking at those first Christmases in New England and uh, the, uh, the efforts that Bradford and, and others go to to try and make sure that it is totally unmarked <laughs> as a celebration. So yeah, so that's a story that continues to a lesser or greater degree in, in the North. Um, in the South, I've got a quotation from, from John Smith, of course, um, however much stock we put in that about um, having a very Merry Christmas. And certainly... The South likes to pride itself well into the 19th century about being the, 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 the real home of Christmas in America and of carrying on um, the, the Christmas traditions of, of old England and carrying that through well into the 19th century. And however much that is, is, is true in total, it's certainly the way that it, it gets narrated both in the antebellum South and I think even more importantly in, in the kind of reconstruction and post-reconstruction South as well. The, the idea that the South has ownership of Christmas, you know, plays a big part in, in kind of lost cause narratives, I think. Those are the foundational narratives of Christmas in America. And all, it's almost more important the way that they, they get narrated and re-understood in 19th century America as much as, as in their own time, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And I think one of my favorite lines in the book that you, you added was from Ever, uh, Edward Everett Hale, who said the first Christmas in New England was celebrated by some of the, some people who tried as hard as they could not to celebrate it at all. I have to admit, yeah. I laughed out loud at that. Um, <laughs> one of the other cases you make in the book, which I think is fascinating and important for readers and listeners to, to grapple with, is that Christmas was a transatlantic holiday and one that came to the United States through many cultural appropriations from all over the world. But England, Scotland, and the Netherlands feature centrally here. What are the features of Christmas that we take from those European cultures? Well, I mean, I suppose pretty much everything <laughs> you could argue. I mean, other other people have done uh, have done a really nice job of tracing down the the roots of all of those um, distinctive Christmas features. So, you know, Christmas trees, St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, Father Christmas, however we want to call him, how he manifests um, across America in, in different ways at different times. So I think pretty much all of the elements that we might think of as being the iconic parts of, of Christmas all find their way to America from, from somewhere. Yeah, and like I say, other people have, have done a great job of tracing those down, you know, chasing down the first Christmas tree in America and chasing down that kind of genetic evolution of, of Santa. But what I think um, what I, what I think's particularly interesting about that as it plays out in the literature, as it plays out across some of these, these stories, is the degree to which writers are totally happy to play with those elements quite early on in the 19th century. So... You know, often when we're looking at the history of, of the, the culture and the, so, the, the social history of Christmas and, and the elements that we're most familiar with, I think there is there's often been an interest in really getting into that fine grain detail of when the first St. Nicholas appears, 
when that transforms into Santa Claus, you know, what part does Father Christmas play in that? Whereas what I think is really interesting about the literary and cultural side of that is that people are not really bothered about that. <laughs> They're just grabbing bits from wherever at all points and sticking them together. Um, there's no shyness in kind of reinventing myths about Santa Claus and St. Nicholas and Father Christmas and using those terms pretty indiscriminately at points. People grab the Christmas tree and uh, do all sorts of things with that as well in, in literary terms. So yeah, so I think that's one of the things that, it, that that's quite fun, looking at the literary history of things rather than that fine-grained social history that, that you can see the, um, the kind of freewheeling way in which people grab whatever fashionable element of, of Christmas is circulating around and, um, and, and putting it to use and kind of unashamedly making it an American tradition. So yeah, and I think the other country that you probably was, is worth mentioning there is Germany. And I think, you know, Germany obviously has enormous influence. You get reports of Christmas celebrations in Germany kind of filtering through into Britain and American uh, literary life from the late 18th century onwards. So probably Germany is, is the other country to throw in the mix there as well. Uh, you also, I mean, you start the book with Washington Irving, which I think is really apt, and you, you, you make a really strong case for why, why to begin there. And it's really about setting the scene for a nostalgic Christmas, uh, something that we, I, I, I guess we all have in our minds, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. so uh, in, in terms of picking the literature, how did you decide on the stories that you chose? And were there ones that you wish you could print more of? If you had a unabridged version, where would it lead to? Well, that's interesting. Well, what I, I really wanted to make the, the collection reflect um, the shifting landscape of American literature. So I think you know, one of the arguments I make in the book is that paying attention to Christmas as a literary subject in a way that I think we haven't before really allows us to, to trace a new uh, a new history of American literature in this period, if you like. This collection kind of came about to me um, over a number of years when it became clear how pretty much every American author that I could think of, whether canonical, non-canonical, talks about Christmas at some point. In, in many ways, I think it's the, like the most unifying theme you can, you can come across that links the most diverse range of American writers possible. So, so yeah, so in terms of selection, I really wanted to make sure that the the collection told a story about American literature uh, as much as it told a story about Christmas. So yeah, so, and also I wanted it to be um, as diverse as possible. Um, I wanted to get as many competing voices in here. Yeah, voices in here that might not normally make it into this kind of anthology um, in order to round out that sense of Christmas as something which is in flux, in conflict, in conversation throughout the whole century. In no way a kind of fixed thing at any point throughout the 19th century. We might be tempted to think nostalgically like all of these writers are really and think that there is um, some kind of prior golden age of Christmas celebrations where where it's it's there's no sense of conflict no sense of churn no sense of flux but that just does not exist right and and that's what these stories tell us I think as well that Christmas is absolutely about the conversations that it inspires in American life so yeah so so I think there's lots of interesting competing voices in here which rub up against Christmas as, as much as celebrate Christmas that to me is the, the 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 latter is the most exciting thing about this anthology to me is that it's inclusive, and um, I, I don't just mean that in terms of including female writers that we are probably we, we we can recognize their names Louisa May Alcott or you know but Native American authors and and I think one of the most exciting sections is the one that deals with African American slaves. Uh, who and how they observed Christmas uh, before the Civil War. Could you tell the listeners about the Christmas dichotomy for those that were enslaved and how they dealt with the holiday? 
Yes. Yeah, so I have in this collection there's um, extracts from Frederick Douglass, um, Solomon Northrup, and um, and Harriet Jacobs. In the introduction, I go into a bit more detail about um, the ways in which Christmas became closely linked to um, to abolition and the abolitionist movement more broadly. And yes, absolutely, uh, enslaved people uh, or self-liberated people like Douglass and uh, and Jacobs and others absolutely put Christmas at the heart of their at the heart of their narratives and the heart of their life stories, really use Christmas to a whole a whole host of different ends. Um, certainly, to point up the hypocrisy of the South and the slaveholding South. Uh, you know, the South um, tries to um, position itself, as, as I've said before, as as the spiritual home of Christmas, and and it would it would use Christmas in a kind of propaganda sense in the antebellum years, and 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 then to highlight the degree to which um, the enslaved might be given a couple of days holidays at Christmas, or, um, or, or or had some other kind of celebratory moments. But you know, Douglas absolutely um, takes that head on. Absolutely positions Christmas as as one of the 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 iconically hypocritical and um, and uh, problematic parts of slavery, part of the gross fraud. Of, of slavery, as he puts it. So yeah, so as far as he's concerned, it, it, in miniature, in a sense, it, 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 it provides a, a perfect snapshot of, of everything that is problematic about, about slavery. Um, Northrop's extract is interesting because it does um, give a sense of the ways in which, you know, Christmas was a moment in which the enslaved um, might attempt to, to celebrate, almost kind of positions Christmas celebrations as a form of, of resistance in and of itself against, uh, against bondage. Uh, and Jacobs, really picks up on um, that kind of sentimental domestic vision of Christmas, but, but refracts that through her own experiences uh, of slavery and pushes that kind of emotional quality of Christmas, particularly as it relates to, um, to motherhood and children and, um, and her inability to be with her children. So, so yeah, so I think they, are, they give really um, interestingly different visions of, of, of how Christmas played out in uh, enslaved narratives and um, and in the abolition movement and the different uses to which it was put. But also in the introduction, I talk a lot about the way in which the broader abolition movement also kind of latched onto slavery, uh, to, to Christmas as a moment to, to kind of galvanize support, to raise money, to, um, to help in the fight against slavery. Um, so there's lots of um, anti-slavery fairs take place at Christmas, lots of publications, gift books associated um, with those fairs. But yeah, talk about the, uh, the, the early erection of a Christmas tree uh, at one of the anti-slavery fairs in Boston, as a as a as a spectacle to um, to raise money and to raise uh, awareness, that I think is a really interesting story. The way in which Christmas is is almost as soon as it becomes uh, a popular part of, of of the season again, it you know starts to be embraced by Americans, is immediately put to political use, and 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 the abolitionist movement really really takes hold of it. But at the same time, of course, you've got southern voices who are pushing back against that and you know William Gilmore Sims you know famous southern writer publishes a number of Christmas stories from you know 1852 1853 onwards clearly responding to Uncle Tom's Cabin which which present happy Christmases on the plantation um, and really establish it kind of really push that trope um, early on. Yeah I think it's the thing the thing for me that really gripped me reading the three slave narratives that you have there is that there's this point of resistance that uh, Douglas makes, you know, not drinking on the holidays in order to observe the, you know, the solemnity of his position, um, or uh, Solomon Northrop's, um, you know, considerations of running away 
I mean, that this is a, this is an opportunity to run away as much as it is to celebrate. Yeah. I mean, that struck me as an incredible dichotomy that I've read. I've read these narratives before, but, you know, the Christmas element sort of bypassed me and I didn't I, you know, it gets lost in some of the wider themes, which is why your book is so yeah. great, because it, it sheds this light on Christmas time as an important moment in everyone's lives, whether you're yeah. a slave, a slave or a slaveholder. Uh, or, or an abolitionist or otherwise. And, and that's the Civil War seemed to weaponize Christmas. Uh, and how does the generation born during the Civil War then come to write about Christmas in the postbellum period? Yeah, yeah well, def- definitely, definitely it weaponizes Christmas, that's, that's for sure. And, and it, it makes its way into all elements of, of, of popular culture, of course. Yeah, it definitely has an effect on children's culture, I think, during the war. We can see that in a number of... Um, number of children's magazines and a given account of the ways in which children uh, receive different kind of Christmas gifts. So, you know, lots of war narratives, <laughs> lots of accounts of the war um, go into stockings. Um, but it is, it is kind of fascinating as well to see the way that the North and South both, both keep Christmas during the war. You can see the South pushing back on on certain visions of Christmas. So um, I, th- I think it's the Richmond Examiner. I can't remember which uh, which newspaper it was. Um, launches an attack on on Santa Claus as a, as a kind of New England creation, and uh, and makes it clear that that in the South, Father Christmas is the gift giver. Gift giver. You know, Santa Claus is too kind of tainted by by Yankee association at that point. But yes, undoubtedly, as it is in in American culture far more widely, the Civil War is a turning point for. Uh, for Christmas, as it sits in um, American literary culture, uh, and I think on the you can see it kind of bifurcate in, in a number of ways. First of all, its relationship to children's literature becomes um, more intense, I think, and and you can see the way in which Christmas becomes a template, a, a signal moment in in pretty much all of the the iconic children's literature produced in this period. So, Little Women is obviously the most the most famous example. You know, begins with that 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 vignette, Joe sitting on the hearthrug, Christmas won't be Christmas without presents. You know, absolutely kind of iconic moment. But yeah, you, but you can see Christmas play out um, in in pretty much all of the iconic children's literature that, that that gets that gets published around this period. And I include an extract from probably one of the lesser known ones now, um, but but a book that started off a series of of, um, of sequels that ran into the twentieth century. So Five Little Peppers, which I think is a very nice extract because it it shows a group of children still kind of experiencing Christmas for the first time. Um, the, the the peppers in question are a kind of a family in a kind of genteel poverty. And so they attempt to, um, to have Christmas pretty much for the first time. So yeah, so we can say so you can still see that Christmas is still a kind of growing thing, um, still reaching, um, reaching new people, but also I suppose is has also become a part of life where where children are feeling left out if they're not part of, <laughs> of Christmas at this point as well. So I think, I think that's an extract that captures, captures a lot of that. On the other hand, um, Dickens dies in 1870. Dickens is clearly someone who has dominated the Christmas literary scene in Britain and America for a number of decades by this point. I make it clear in the introduction that I think perhaps surprisingly to many, Christmas Carol is a bit of a damp squib in America to begin with, um, because of course Dickens travels to America in 1842, um, writes American notes, his, his travel account of his time in Britain, 
And America is not happy with Dickens in the immediate aftermath of that, right? He, as far as they're concerned, he's far too critical about, um, about life in America. So when Christmas Carol comes out in 1843, America is still kind of slightly boycotting Dickens and, <laughs> and his work, um, which of course does not, does not linger. And, um, and Christmas Carol becomes essential to, to, uh, to an American understanding of Christmas. Um, and the Christmas issues of household words and all the year round and, um, that, that, that run for a number of years, they're, they're just as popular in America as in Britain. But yeah, so he dies in 1870, and that does seem to be a kind of interesting pivot point as well for, um, for the way that America wants to think about Christmas. And, in, and, I, and I focus a lot on William Dean Howells um, and his particular response to Christmas literature, because I think it gives a really interesting miniature of, of, of much wider transatlantic literary debates at this period, because Howells spends a lot of time thinking and writing about Christmas. And particularly, he spends a lot of time complaining about Christmas literature and kind of lamenting about the way in which it dominates um, the publishing schedule uh, at the end of the year, um, how everything seems to be a kind of pale imitation of, of Dickens. He calls it ghastly. <laughs> he kind of laments the, um, the, 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 the ongoing um, sentimental nature of Christmas literature. He says, basically, he says that, you know, the, the idea in Gilded Age America that someone could be reformed by a Christmas dinner seems more and more ludicrous. So, so he kind of puts out a call to, to American writers to either well, abandon the Christmas story, I think that would be his preference basically, um, or at least try and approach it with a new sense of literary realism. And of course, you know, sentimental Christmas stories absolutely persist, but I think it is, it is really interesting to see at this period how how much American writers kind of take up that, that challenge. So I have to admit, one of the, my favorite stories in here is how Santa Claus came to Simpson's bar, which in many ways, I think it speaks to that transition from the Dickensian supernatural and sentimental Christmas to a more realistic one. But in the same breath, I should say that um, the, the story is about um, a kind of a cowboy who brings gifts to a sick kid. And within that story, there is still that soft romanticism mixed in with the, the sort of more realistic turn, I guess. And, and there are familiar refrains in the book as well from Jacob Rees on the tenements, the transatlantic awe of Henry James. Um, so all of that is in there. I wonder, you know, for you, looking at the Dickensian turn to the realist turn, how real is it? Because it's the, the, the new stories still seem very similar to the old stories. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think it's the, they're still imbued with that sense of social purpose. Um, which I think you know exists in America before Dickens. Obviously, I think Dickens amplifies that, but but I think you can you can see that that being played out in America even before Dickens um, dominates the holiday. Um, so you know, I think Lydia Maria Child is really interesting in relation to that, and um, and her account of Christmas in New York in 1842, just 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 before Dickens is um, is you know is, is about to um, to unleash a Christmas Carol. But yeah, I mean, Bret, Bret Hart is a great example, I think, because he's very much on that kind of pivotal, pivotal point between realism and sentiment and, um, and, and absolutely, um, you know, paid attention to Dickens in many ways, I think. So, yeah, so I think that story is a very interesting example of the way in which um, this is, you know, that's a junction point. You know, Rebecca Harding Davis, though, I think, is, 
yeah, really, and she, she writes a lot of Christmas stories and they're all incredibly dour and incredibly brutal in their own way. And I suppose there is still an element of sentiment in there and emotionality. But I think um, I think the story I include from her in here is, is, is a real powerhouse. You know, that's um, she really, you know, the, the, the stuff she grapples with in there, I think, is is absolutely startling for 1863, really. Um, you know, she's talking about prostitution, urban poverty, drug addiction, death suicide you know it's, it's all in there so yeah so she, she she's powerful I think you know you've also got people like Mary Wilkins Freeman and you could argue that you know as a local colorist you know there, there is still a strong element of that kind of, uh, of domestic sentimentalism in there but I think at the same time you can see her in, in the story I include Christmas Jenny really um, working in a kind of subversive way as well kind of willfully pushing against certain domestic visions of Christmas centering this this eccentric, reclusive woman who um, who lives in the woods and um, really only comes down from the woods uh, at Christmas time to deliver evergreens to um, to her villagers, to, to, to her to her local village. You know, it, it, within that picture, I think she kind of creates almost like a rival to Father Christmas. That the, the Christmas Jenny at the centre of the story almost becomes a kind of uh, a female green man figure, um, a, a kind of alternative gift bringer and spirit of the season to, um, to, to, to the dominant Santa Claus at that point. So, so I think, you know, you can see the way in which writers are using it for subversive purposes who are playing with the tropes that have been established in the antebellum years um, and yet re reawakening, I suppose, that sense of social purpose for, for the new moment. And I mean, that's not even to, to talk about someone like you know, Abraham Kahan, for example. Whose, um, whose story Rabbi Eliza's uh, Christmas really grapples with some of those questions about what Christmas means in relation to American identity and what Christmas might mean to um, Americans who aren't Christian uh, and um, the degree to which you know, Christmas is a, a, a holiday that, that can or cannot be approached by people who aren't Christian and what does that mean about their Americanness? So, so I think that's a, that's a really interesting story that grapples with lots of um, different questions about the idea, the, the, the issue of Christmas in its relation to, to national identity at this point. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I think it's interesting that you brought up Rebecca Harding-Davis and Mary Wilkins Freeman because, you know, Bret Hart, as a male author, had a very different voice, I think, than those two. And that, that the two women, and, and that submersive nature of some of the stories that the women authors are telling seems to be more, not, I mean, sort of radical in a liter- literary sense, not necessarily radical in a political sense, but I think we need to talk about women writers in particular, because I couldn't help but wonder as I was reading the book, were women as prolific publishers of Christmas stories as men in their time or not? And if so, or not, why? Oh, that's interesting. I would say, um, yeah, I would, I would if, if anything, you might argue probably that, um, the, that women were more prolific producers of Christmas stories. Now, certainly that, that probably shifts throughout the century, but I think um, that's, that's notable in the 1850s when you do have um, a kind of dominant strain of sentimental literature, which is absolutely not purely the domain of, of women writers, but it is a field in which women writers um, dominate. Um, and so you can see that from, from pivotal books like Susan Warner's The Wide, Wide World, which you know, in a sense is a definitive text for that period um, and, and really sets, um, sets a template for some enormously um, popular works of, of American fiction by, um, by women writers, um, which, which totally you know, cross the globe. Um, so for example, Wide, Wide World in 1850, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, of course, in 1852, um, The Lamplighter, these are all books which um, set a template for American literature in that period and which, which are enormously big bestsellers. And in fact, you know, as I talk about in the introduction, they all, they all talk about Christmas. Um, and, and to a certain degree, I think that's because for writers who are working in that kind of sentimental domestic mode, Christmas um, ha- is an enormously powerful moment as it develops because it kind of encapsulates so many things which are important to, to the, the sentimental domestic worldview. It's, it becomes about... Um, family, about the home, um, about religion, um, but it also um, exemplifies that idea that, um, that the domestic is a really powerful space in this period, and that actually what happens in the domestic space can have a, a, a much wider effect within the wider world. And so because of the way that Christmas has this kind of underlying um, religiosity, moral sense of moral purpose as it develops, and it, and it has an intimate relationship to the domestic and to, and to the familial, especially as it plays out in American literature, I think you know, that's, that's also one of the distinctive things about American literature in this period, that, um, that it is interested in the, the kind of the homely and the everyday aspects of Christmas far more than the supernatural and the Gothic and, um, and, and the, the kind of ghost story that, that dominates Victorian British Christmas literature in many ways. So I suppose, yeah, the, in the antebellum years, there is that close association between a, um, an important um, cadre of, of female writers who, um, who dominate the literary sphere um, in that kind of sentimental domestic moment. 
you would see that following through in some ways into kind of the local color movement where you are you're working within that tradition that's established in the antebellum period but also um bringing a, a kind of new realist aesthetic to um to what's going on as well so i think those are different texts you know that the mary wilkins freeman feels different than um than than some of the antebellum um, stories and, and the Alice Dunbar Nelson as well but but I think there is a sense of continuity at work there as well as much as those writers are playing with um, with those with those tropes um, in the late 19th century whether or not women dominate that's an interesting question I think I think in some ways they probably might do and one might argue as well perhaps that that might be um, some of the reason why um, over the last century or so certain aspects of Christmas literature have been um, neglected because um, they have been um, sometimes I think probably associated with a style of writing that is um, ephemeral um, you know commercial in a sense that it's you know these, these are stories which were produced um, to meet a market demand uh, at the end of every year you know editors needed to fill up space with Christmas material <laughs> and so it needed to be supplied um, so I think there's maybe a sense that um, that 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 the Christmas story was um, was was a commercial proposition that wasn't necessarily of literary interest, but but hopefully you know this collection um, goes some way to um, to correcting that narrative and to um, and to and to, to refocusing attention on Christmas in this uh, in, in its literary life. There's no irony in the fact that this book is coming out at Christmas time, being sold at Christmas time, and it talks about books as a Christmas gift. So Christmas commodity, um, yeah. I mean, the, in many ways, books are, you know, the, the oldest Christmas gift, at least in the in the modern era of Christmas, you know, it's it's books which really helped to kickstart that that kind of practice of gift giving again in the early 19th century. And I think that's something that, that hasn't diminished, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. And I, I, it, it brings me up with, it, it, the commercial side of this brings me to ask you a question about class and about wealth and poverty. There's a real disparity in the stories between uh, stories like Harriet Beecher Stowe, Christmas, The Good Fairy, um, which is, you know, there's it's an opulent Christmas to Jacob Reese's Christmas in the Tenement. Can you say a little something about how Christmas is written and experienced from these very different vantage points? Yeah, that's interesting. I, sub I, yeah, I suppose we can, you know, Dickens has a part to play in that perhaps in, um, in making Christmas a time in which kind of class disparity um, is is central to um, to the sense of things, uh, and I, yeah, that that absolutely runs um, throughout this collection. I think right from, I guess you know Irving is is playing with that in some ways, but he's you know he's looking back to a kind of um, uh, an imagined golden feudal period where um, where where um, where benevolence trickled down from um, from great country houses to um, to the to the noble rural rural folk, and he you know he's kind of poking fun at that as much as he is kind of sincerely um, trying to, to to shape that as a golden age. But yes, I suppose from um, from from the the antebellum period onwards, you know, Dick, Dickens certainly pushes that forward. I suppose, but again, I think you can see that um, developing in American literature before that. You know, Lydia Maria Child in her again in her um, her Christmas letter. From New York in 1842, spends the day kind of wandering through um, through the streets, you know, visiting the urban poor, and contrasting their 
um, their Christmas celebrations to um, to those of the the wealthy and the opulent. Uh, so yeah, that that juxtaposition of, of wealth and poverty is something um, that that I think is a, a, a theme that that runs through the whole collection probably. Um, yeah, so the, the collection ends with Jacob Rees's account of, of Christmas in the Tenements, which I think is a really it's 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 more a piece of reportage than it is um, a piece of fiction. Although he you know he wrote enormous amounts about Christmas actually in one way or another, perhaps surprisingly. Um, but it has a really wonderful panoramic sense, I think, of of the multiplicity of of what Christmas. Um, meant and um, and and the many different ways that it was absorbed by people across the class spectrum, um, from you know various cultural backgrounds, you know adherents of different religions, um, the way that Christmas has become a kind of a far more universalizing thing at the end of the century um, than at the beginning, um, and yeah, is an enormously malleable um, celebration at that point. It seems. Um, whatever circumstances uh, people might find themselves in so yeah so it's so definitely it's it's understood to be a time of, of of charitable giving of um of of good works you know whether or not you know that plays out beyond the pages of these stories whether or not it's it's enough to read about good works and um and moral reform and whether that kind of uh, satiates that um that urge in, in an ironic way um is obviously debatable that becomes sharper at the end of the century again so I think you, we can see that in the antebellum period, and I think that definitely becomes sharper again at the end of the century, arguably. Perhaps unsurprisingly, um, you know, it, it, at that time, that um, that seems to become a matter of, of greater concern again um, within Christmas literature. And yeah, you can see that in the Pauline Hopkins story, I think. You can see that in Jacob Rees, certainly. And I think you could trace that more widely as well, um, that yes, Christmas is far more universal at the end of the century, but that sense of disparity of of wealth and status and the way that Christmas sharpens that inevitably um, is, 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 is there. It's also interesting, I think, I, I don't think I talk about this much in the book, but it, it's interesting the way you can see that play out in children's literature as well, quite from quite early on, because of course, you know, Santa is set up as someone who, um, who makes judgments, right? Who, uh, who delivers toys to, to good children and who doesn't deliver toys to, um, uh, to bad children. But, yeah, very early on, you can see children's writers wrestling with this, because what does that mean for, for, for poor children whose, whose parents simply can't afford to bring them presents, right? So they, they are quite conscious early on about the way that that has the potential to stigmatise those children and to, um, and to kind of make, make their poverty um, seem to them to be a, a symbol of moral, of moral ill, if you like. Um, so yeah, so they have to try and argue their way around that <laughs> a bit early on to try and um, to try and nuance that a bit. I think, which uh, which is interesting because I don't think you see people wrestling with that much beyond that. But early on, as Santa starts to get established, there is there does seem to be a bit of concern about what that means for children who uh, who, uh, who simply are not going to get presents, not because of their own um, their own moral failings, but because of uh, but because of poverty. So so yeah, so I think I think that is a, a keynote that runs through things definitely. That's a great insight with the children's stories, because there is this sort of Manichaean view running through Christmas. You're either on the good list or you're on the mm. bad list. Right. Um, yeah. And that, and that sort of story hits with slavery. It hits with, you know, class and poverty. And I think it also really, you know, it stems back to this r religious question about Christmas. And one of the great quotes from uh, the book is from uh, an excerpt from Robert Ingersoll, who wrote a Christmas sermon. And the line is, the good part of Christmas is not always Christian. It is generally pagan. That is to say, human, natural. 
So I guess the question I have for you is, is how important or not is religion to the holiday vibe in Gilded Age America? Yeah, I mean, finding the Ingersoll stuff was, um, was, was, was really great because I did not expect to find it. I think, you know, going into this as much as I had a sense of what was out there, um, you know, when I came across Ingersoll stuff, um, yeah, that, that, was, that was a bit mind blowing, I think, because I really did not expect to see his, um, his kind of critiques of Christmas and that he would come back and again and again to Christmas as a theme. So Ingersoll, of course, was famous as um, as a speaker and as a writer, and you know particularly as an agnostic slash atheist um, and someone who was um, who was probably the most famous voice against organized religion in America in the late nineteenth century. So of course, it's unsurprising that he would turn his attention to Christmas. Um, but even then, it was it's still you know really um, compelling to to come across him taking on Christmas as a subject. And as you say, yes, kind of arguing that, that Christmas was, was as pagan as it was Christian, arguing in favor of Christmas, because as, he's, as far as he's concerned, America doesn't have enough kind of time off, enough you know, sense of celebration and holiday. Um, so yeah, so he's, he's all in favor of Christmas, but he's, he's, he's kind of um, vocally attempting to detach it from Christianity uh, as a holiday. What I think that shows us is that it is in the Gilded Age that, that, that in a sense, America really starts to wrestle with the religious aspect of Christmas, which is perhaps surprising. We might think that, you know, that, that, that religion is a constant foregrounded part of Christmas right from, uh, right from the earliest part of the 19th century. And, you know, in some ways it is, absolutely. I mean, there are, Irving's writing about Christmas, he's, of course, he's, you know, he, he references that it is a, you know, a, a, a Christian celebration, but, you know, he's far more interested in uh, the kind of social and folkloric customs of Christmas and that sense of Christmas heritage. You know, you get writers like Harry Beecher Stowe writing about Christmas, and of course there is a, a kind of religious backdrop to that, but again she's interested in the way it plays out in the domestic sphere and it's, it's use as a time for good works uh, and you know we can see that in the abolition movement as well but yeah when we get to the late 19th century that's really when I think we start to get to grips with it it's the time I think when religious Americans really start to embrace Christmas right when that overhanging Puritan um, suspicion of Christmas really starts to get eroded and um, religious Americans really feel kind of liberated if you like to to embrace Christmas um, despite all the, the prior misgivings about it. Um, you know, that sense that it's not theologically established, that, um, that there's nowhere in, in the Bible that really kind of corroborates the date of Christmas. That sense that it has a very, um, that it has Catholic connotations is problematic for many Americans for a long period. Um, its association with kind of debauchery and excess and, and street celebrations, those kind of, those lingering qualities of it. But yeah, but, and, and, the text that I pin it to, and I think, yeah, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for this argument, is Lou Wallace's Ben Hur, which is um, we will probably be more familiar, I guess, as, uh, with with the movie version still to um, to many, but but yeah, Lou Wallace publishes Ben Hur in 1880, and it is an enormous bestseller. Uh, I mean, it's it's a toss up between Uncle Tom's Cabin and and um, and Ben Hur, which is the biggest selling book of the 19th century, uh, and, and you know, I think some people would say that Ben Hur probably edges it. The long first section of that book is basically a novella in, in and of itself, is actually um, Wallace's retelling of the Nativity. You know, it opens in this very evocative um, scene in the desert with the, um, the wise men kind of coming together. And it, and it really follows through 
um, that nativity story in intense kind of textual detail. You know, that's Wallace's real innovation, I think, in, in, in Ben-Hur is that, that he takes the, the gestures and the references to, uh, to the nativity in the New Testament and he, he kind of builds an imaginary holy land around them. You know, he does lots of intense research um, and, and that all plays out on the page so that he really um, makes the nativity live, I think, for, um, for late 19th century readers. He really, he really puts flesh on the bones, if you like. Uh, of the nativity and yeah it's, it's, it's enormously popular um, it's released as a novel of course in 1880 but that early part of the book which deals with the nativity is released in in, in separate editions sp specifically targeted at the Christmas gift book market and uh, and hers vision uh, Wallace's vision of the nativity I think becomes um, the, the, the kind of dominant one if you like in this period and it it really spirals out widely into um into popular culture and I think you know you can see increasing attention to the biblical story of Christmas from that point onwards but I think the 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 moment that I that I was really delighted with as well with it, within that was the way with, in which Ingersoll's attack on Christmas if you like attack on the, the kind of Christian ownership of Christmas and Wallace's um, creation of, of of his literary nativity were were linked because as Wallace tells the story um, he met Ingersoll um, on a train journey to a, um, a civil war reunion that was taking place. And during their, their train journey, Ingersoll and Wallace start to talk about religion. And, and Ingersoll, of course, kind of puts the case against Christianity. And Wallace is absolutely rocked by this. He, he doesn't know how to answer Ingersoll. And he's kind of sent into his own uh, kind of spiral of, of, of faith and doubt at this point. And it, it sends him off onto this um, kind of scholarly and, and, um, and spiritual journey um, in which he he delves deeply into into the Bible, into biblical history, um, and Ben Hur is the product of that. So Ingersoll is both this uh, this this fascinating voice speaking out and um, creating a very different vision of Christmas for Americans at this period. But he's also responsible, ironically, for I think um, the kind of literary uh, religious revival of Christmas in this period as well. So um, so that that's a very neat little moment I think that that kind of um, squares that circle, if you like. I mean, I think the stories between those two authors and meeting on a train, I mean, and, and also the importance of the nativity. I mean, the nativity that we read about in Ben-Hur is the nativity that we, you can see in the, the fronts of churches today. I mean, it's it's got a direct connection to the Christmases we experience now. And yet it is, and you say this in the book, I think, it's, it's, it's fabricated to a certain extent, despite all the research that was done for the book. I mean, this is put together to present a religious and uh, palatable Christian faith that everyone can engage with. And I guess the question I have about fabricating the Christmas traditions is that we all we all make traditions every year. There's a new tradition every year. Does the literature that we're reading about here almost encourage us to make of Christmas what we will, you know, to build our own traditions and to do with the, the holiday whatever suits us and gives us pleasure? Yeah, I think I think that's a great message to take from this collection, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully it's, uh, you know, it might be slightly liberating, I think, for <laughs> for, for readers to actually, um, yeah, invent their own traditions to embrace whatever parts of Christmas they want to embrace. And um, and I think it is very reassuring to um, to read about people in the 1850s um, 
already tired of Christmas in some ways, already already exhausted from um, from having to think of presents for people, uh, already kind of bowed down by the work that Christmas often generates. So um, so yes, I think I think um, th there is a message of liberation in there in, in, in some ways, and and um, and yet yeah, not to be shy of uh, of reinventing Christmas and to um, and to and to and to shaping whatever traditions uh, work for you in whatever moment. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting to see how there is also a kind of uh, an industry around creating Christmas and creating tradition, you know, very early on in magazines, um, particularly in publications like Godey's Ladies Book, you know, early on giving you instructions on, on what you need to do and how early you need to start working and how much work you do need to do to, <laughs> to create the, the Christmas that is already required, um, what re required by that point. But yeah, I, yeah, I think I think that's that that's absolutely one of the things that that leaps out of these stories. How how it's always in flux. How um, how there is never a period at which um, uh, there is a static thing that we can point at that is that is called Christmas and that is um, you know universally beloved and uh, and is universally harmonious and uh, and 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 delightful. So uh, so yes, I think that's 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 a really nice thing to take from the collection, actually. Yeah. Well, thanks. I'm glad you like that. That's what I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna stick with. And I just, I just want to say as well that the book is uh, not only is it enjoyable. I, I did set a fire and and sit down and read it. You know, kind of starting off my winter here. But but also, I'm gonna share some of these stories with my kids and and share the book with friends because it is it is that kind of sharing thing that you do at Christmas. You give a book or you share some stories. And Tom, I just can't thank you enough for producing it and for coming on the show to talk about it. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I've been I've been living with Christmas for uh, all, all year round for a while now. So it's nice to actually get to talk about it when we're within touching distance of the season. So, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Well, that is all the time we have for on today's episode. Many thanks to Professor Smith for joining us to talk about the Christmas holidays. And may I wish all the listeners a very happy holiday season, whatever holiday you might celebrate. To see us out this Christmas, uh, let me play a little bit more of the Herbert Operetta Babes in Toyland. This is March of the Toys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365 day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.